But beloved, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the letter to the Hebrews, the final chapter, Hebrews chapter 13. In a moment, I'm going to read that chapter, but we're going to focus on verse 17. As you know, we are two years into a global pandemic. During this time, we have quite literally been scattered across the city and across the country. And the separation from one another has caused some impacts we can see. For example, we've been unable to meet in person for most of the pandemic. Physical gatherings and even physical touch have been reduced to almost subhuman levels in some cases. We're now more likely to know someone by their mask than their smiles. And there are some impacts we have yet to see or to fully see. Beloved, it's sad for me to say that some churches won't survive this pandemic. That's especially true of smaller, older congregations. Some personal relationships have essentially vanished. Even our very ideas about what's necessary for doing church or the Christian life has changed in some unseen and unforeseen ways. It's these kinds of things that have prompted the pastors here at ARC to focus this year in relaunching ARC. By by relaunching, I, I simply mean going back to our essentials as a church. Across the pandemic, our total membership has remained pretty much the same, about 180 persons, praise God. But 25% of our membership has joined in the two years of the pandemic. Another 20 to 25% have moved to other churches or other parts of the country. So we are in many ways a new church. And the pastors don't want to take for granted that we have heard or that we remember all the things that are foundational to us. So we're going back to basics. This year, the pulpit ministry will focus on a few Christian essentials for us as as a church. The first five weeks in the year, Pastor Dennis did a marvelous job of leading us through our five M's, our five core objectives as a church, to spread the message of the gospel, to show mercy to our neighbors, uh, to seek to shepherd each other to uh, maturity, to seek to multiply leaders and churches and church plants, and to spread the gospel, to spread missionaries to the four corners of the globe. Our next series, the one after this, we're going to walk through our church covenant, which is basically a a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches about how we are to live together as a Christian community. These are promises we make to God and to each other and to ourselves about how we will live out the faith. The late spring and summer, Lord willing, we'll hopefully preach a a book of the Bible that really focuses on how to live as a church. We'll probably do 1 Timothy. But right now, I'm going to sort of stick, we're sticking this little series in the middle of all of that, that focuses on the relationship between pastors and people. Now, that relationship lies at the heart of so many things in the Christian life that we dare not take it for granted. So in this series, we are focused not so much on 
what pastors do, their job description, and not so much on what members do, your job description, but we're trying to focus on the spiritual dynamic that is at the heart of this relationship. Spiritually speaking, what should be happening between us as pastors and people when we relate to one another? What should we expect God to do? So far, we've had two sermons that have tried to make two points. If you're just joining us for the series, you missed those sermons here, the main points from those sermons, basically. The first point is this, that pastors and people work together for the joy of the people and their firm faith. That we're in a partnership for your joy and for your firm faith. In the second sermon, this is what we said, that that partnership requires the pastors to set an example of following Jesus and the people to follow that example in faith. So that's as close as we get to roles, right? That pastors are meant to be Jesus-centered, example-setting leaders, and the people in faith are meant to follow the pastors as they follow Christ, following them toward joy. Okay? So this morning, we come to the third sermon. I want us to take a look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And in this text, I'm going to summarize it, the main point this way, that soul care should be joyful for pastors and profitable for people. That soul care should be joyful for pastors and profitable for people. Now, if you know the letter of Hebrews, you know that the writer here has been writing to prove that Jesus is better than everything. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than everything that's come before in in Judaism and the Jewish religious system. Uh, And he's trying to keep these people from turning away from Jesus and going back to the law, going back to Judaism. And along the way, he's been correcting their they're, they're sort of the false teaching that has come up among them. Uh, and now in chapter 13, he's giving them various instructions for their life together as a church, for their worship together as a community. And we're going to read that from verse 1 down for context, but we're going to settle on verse 17. So look with me in Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we assure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let the church say amen. Look back with me at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This morning, we're going to take that verse apart in three little sections. I want to observe, number one, the two commands in this text, the two commands. And number two, we want to see the, the two reasons given for those commands, the, the two reasons. And then number three, we want to see the two motives, the two motives then for obeying those commands, the commands, the reasons, the motives. Notice now the, the, first, the first point, the two commands. The verse opens very straightforwardly with obey your leaders and submit to them. We in trouble right from the start in this age, aren't we? Right from the start, we need to clarify at least three things. Number one, this text does not give permission to abusive, manipulative, or dictatorial leadership. This is not a command that justifies or excuses abusive, dictatorial, proud, self-important, self-centered, self-interested leadership in the Lord's church. We know this because in the first sermon, we considered 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul says there, we do not lord it over your faith. And Paul is just echoing Jesus when Jesus says that the Gentiles lord it over one another, but it shall not be with you. That Christian leadership is not a domineering, dominating leadership. It is a sacrificial, self-giving leadership. So these commands are not about control and domination and manipulation. Now, some people want to be in leadership so they can tell others what to do. That is not the spirit of New Testament leadership. The second thing we need to clarify is that this is, a, this is not about blind following. It's not about blind following, just doing what the leader said because the leader said it. Christians are called to test the spirits, to try every spirit, to see what sort it is. Christians are called to follow the examples of the Bereans in, in the book of Acts. You remember, they were called noble. They were noble Bereans because they took even the Apostle Paul's teaching and they examined the scriptures to see whether or not what he was teaching was so. 
Everywhere the Bible calls Christians to be discerning, to, to, to sort of bring their minds to God, to love God with all their minds as well as their heart and soul. So this verse doesn't contradict any of that. Obeying and submitting are not blindly following. Number three, this is not establishing pastoral authority apart from the word of God. We need to say that the pastor's authority and the church's submission isn't something that comes up out of the pastor himself. It comes from the authority of the word of God. I've always liked this saying, an elder with a Bible without a Bible is an elder without authority. I've always loved that saying. There's a pinch of of, of hyperbole in it. There's a pinch of exaggeration in it, but it exaggerates in the right direction. I mean, there are going to be some times where churches will follow the leadership of their pastors uh, in areas where the Bible doesn't necessarily speak um, definitively. So just this past Thursday, the pastors presented to the church a budget for 2022. There is no Bible, there's no text in the Bible that says, thou shalt approve the budget, right? But you all followed us wisely, I would argue, in the whole process of putting the budget together. And then you engaged us with questions and comments and feedback in the process of approving the budget. Now, we, we did that as you were submitting to the pastors w- without a biblical text. So there are some instances in wisdom and prudence and gray matters where that's necessary. But ordinarily, ordinarily, any authority that Thabiti or Dennis or Babatunde or Tim have in your life, if you're a member of this church, It comes from this. It comes from the book. It comes from the Bible. Because what we're really wanting to see is the lordship of Christ played out in our lives, not not mine. So follow us as we follow Christ. And recognize that these commands do not justify abusive leadership or dictatorial leadership. doesn't set up tyrants. The, The commands do not mean blind following. That's what we say by the book. That would make us really happy. The commands do not mean authority is in the, in the person of the pastor apart from the Bible. So what do these commands mean? How are we to understand them? Well, when we obey someone, we are persuaded to take a certain belief or action and put it into play. When someone obeys, they they act on another person's instruction and teaching. Now, in the immediate context of Hebrews chapter 13, the writer was concerned, again, about Christians listening to people other than their pastors and so being exposed to false teaching. Look back at verse 9 of chapter 13. He says there, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. This is a whole church that was just sort of chasing after other teachings, heading back to Judaism. And the writer here says, No, 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 no. God's given you leaders. Listen to them as they teach you the word of God. So you are meant to be persuaded by the teaching of the word of God, and then you are meant in that persuasion to honor, to keep, to obey, to apply what you're taught from your leaders. Submit 
means to, to give way or to yield. The, the word group from which we get submission often has the idea of ordering yourself under someone. It's often used in the context of, of ancient militaries where soldiers put themselves under their commanding officers and yielded to their orders. But the idea of submission actually finds its highest expression in the Son of God's submission to the Father. Remember John 6, 38, where the Lord says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There it is right there. I have come down from heaven to order myself under the will of the Father and to do it. The Son is in no way inferior to the Father. They are both fully God, equally God. And yet the Son submits to the Father, yields to him. And that's the case in the relationship between pastors and people. There's leadership and there's submission. Now, if we don't like the words obey and submit, we're going to have a difficult time being faithful Christians. We're going to have a difficult time following Jesus. In fact, a person cannot even begin to follow Jesus, cannot even become a Christian unless they embrace the command to obey the gospel itself. Let me give you three texts here. You can write them down and look at them later, but hear how obedience is being talked about in reference to the gospel. Romans chapter 10, verse 16. Romans 10, 16. Paul says there, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. He's describing people who are not yet Christians. They have, the reason they're not Christians is they have not yet obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. The, the fundamental sort of condition of someone who is not a Christian is that they are people who are still living in disobedience to the gospel. Or consider this text, 1 Peter 4.17. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, here's the question he asks, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If God is so holy and God is so serious about the rule of his creation, the rule of his world, that he's going to begin with judgment even in the household of God, how will people escape who disobey the gospel? That's Peter's question. What will happen to them? Well, the Bible actually answers that question. Here's the third passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. There, Paul is thinking about Jesus coming the second time, coming in glory and power, and, and, and coming to gather his people. But he also describes what happens to those who are not yet Christians. He says that Jesus will come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, notice, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You see what Paul is saying there? that there is only eternal judgment and separation from God and separation from his glory 
for those who do not obey the gospel. The, the, the word we use for that is hell or judgment or wrath. That's what awaits those who refuse to obey the gospel. And so my question for you this morning is have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? The gospel message that tells us that Jesus, the son of God, came into the world in human flesh. He lived a perfect life in order to be an offering of righteousness to God in our place. And then he dies on the cross where he not merely dies physically, but he is punished by God. The wrath of God is poured out on him so that he would be our sin bearer and so that he would take the wrath of God so that we would not have to. He's our substitute, making things right with God, making atonement with God in the place of sinners. He's buried, but three days later, he's raised again from the grave. And in the resurrection, it's like God is saying, I I accept your sacrifice. It's all done. Come to me. And in the resurrection, he provides for our resurrection, those who believe. And he's coming again to gather his church, as we have just read. And the promise of the gospel is, if you put your faith in Jesus, yes, the command of the gospel is that you must repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And the promise, the result of that is all of your sins are wiped clean. You're given a new name with God. You're brought into an everlasting relationship with him where you no longer ever have to fear his judgment because Christ has taken it. And you always only receive his love. And in his presence is fullness of joy. The command of the gospel is that you repent of your sin and you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So I'll ask you again, have you obeyed the gospel? Or are you continuing in disobedience? If you die in disobedience, there is no escape from God's eternal judgment. You escape it while you live by repenting and believing. Do it now. Trust in the Lord. And beloved, if we are already Christians, once we have believed the gospel, we are not done with submission and obedience, are we? We enter a life that requires it in almost every kind of relationship you can imagine. So if you will, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Keep your finger in Hebrews 13. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. And let's consider together verses 18 to 22, a section of scripture sometimes called the household codes. There, the Apostle Paul writes in the Bible, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, we don't have time to give a whole exposition of that paragraph. I know some of y'all got stuck at wives submit. Others of y'all got stuck at slaves obey. You know, there's a whole lot to unpack here. 
But aren't those words clear? Obey, submit. In the marriage relationship, in the parent relationship, in the, in the slave or the employee-employer relationships. Obedience and submission are built into every relationship in society. And Hebrews 13, 17 is simply bringing those commands and the way the Lord has structured the world into the church. And these commands are so important to proper living that the opposite, disobedience and rebellion, always produces punishment and chaos. Any relationship, children, disobey your parents this afternoon if you want to. Punishment and chaos. Adults, go to work tomorrow and show out with your boss. Punishment and chaos. It's the nature of things. It's how God has wired the world. And accepting and embracing and doing this in faith is how we enjoy the goodness of authority that God has intended it to have. So Christian, now what I want you to do right now is pay attention to how you're reacting to this verse and this sermon so far this morning. What do you feel? What do you think? Try to be conscious of what's going on in your soul as we move now to this second point, okay? So those are the commands. Let's look now at the reasons. Why should you obey and submit to your leaders? There are two reasons in the text. You see it in the next phrase there. For they are keeping watch over your souls. That's reason number one. As those who will have to give an account. That's reason number two. First reason, submission and obedience is, is called for because these leaders are watching over your souls, Christians. The main business of the pastors is soul care. Even when we are interacting with you about other kinds of matters like physical health or uh, employment issues or family issues, we are still principally concerned with your soul. How is your soul prospering in the midst of those material, physical, temporal kinds of things. And think about that. The writer didn't say they are keeping watch over you. He didn't say they're keeping watch over you. If the, if the writer just said you, then that could have meant any number of things, right? But the writer refers specifically to the soul, that part of every human being that makes them alive and that lives forever. The soul is that part of us that makes it possible for us to, to know God, to love, to feel, to think. The pastor's job is to watch over or to protect and feed the eternal part of the member, the eternal part of the Christian. In the Gospels, the Lord Jesus tells us we should always watch in prayer. Several times, different parables, different teaching. He says we should always watch in prayer. That same word that's used in the teaching of our Lord about prayer for always watching, that's the same word that's used here in Hebrews 13 when he's talking about watching for your soul. The pastor is meant to always be watching out for your soul, for your eternal being. That idea also appears in the Old Testament with different kinds of imagery. Some of you may remember from the Old Testament the idea of the watchman. 
The shepherds are watchmen who stand on the wall looking out for danger, whose responsibility is to sound the alarm should there be an enemy attacked or if some wild animal is, is out and threatening the people. So it is with pastors. We are meant to stand on the wall, so to speak. We are meant to watch out for your souls and to sound the alarm whenever we see danger coming toward you. We are to be actively watchful. And here's what I want you to see. This business of watching for your soul is the reason the Bible is giving you for obeying and submitting to your pastors. They're not saying do this because you want to. They're saying do this actually because it's necessary to your soul. It's necessary to your spiritual well-being. And I'm stressing this because sometimes sheep forget that their shepherds are attempting to do just that. You may not know it, but sheep bite. They nip and bite. If you ever seen a real shepherd, his hand is mangled, man. And in fact, sheep themselves sometimes forget, they forget about their souls. You get swallowed up in other concerns. And you begin to think other things are more important. And you forget that, oh, actually, the, the part of you that lives forever, the part of you that's made for communing with God, that's the most important part of you. And the business of your soul is the most important business of your life. And you have pastors to attend to that. Now, think about, think about that just real quickly. We got to pay our bills, right? Amen down here. Somebody knows. Somebody paying their bills. We got we, we to pay our bills, right? But the Lord did not in the Bible establish accountants and bookkeepers to watch over your finances. We got to take care of our bodies, right? That's a good thing to do. Take care of your body. But the Lord did not established here in the church the office of doctor. Praise God for doctors. But he didn't assign that to the shepherds. You got to take care of your car. Some of you take better care of your car than your bodies. Some of you ruin your finances for your car. And we take our cars to mechanics, don't we? And yet the Bible nowhere says, obey and submit to your mechanic because he takes care of your car. Which do you think is the more important? Your finances, your body, your possessions, or your soul? If God has given people to watch over your soul. See, we're dusting off the pandemic and dusting off of two years of Bedside Baptist Church and dusting off two years of being pretty distant and unconnected. Well, as we dust that off and we get reconnected, we need to remember what, what is most central. It's the souls of the saints. Submit to your leaders because they're watching out for your soul. And nothing is more important for your soul. We know that because Jesus says this, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If he had the whole world, you couldn't purchase your soul. Here's the second reason. Second reason is this. Your pastors will give an account to God. 
Obey and submit to them because they will give an account to God. You see it there in that second part of the phrase there, as those who will have to give an account. This means pastors and people, we're actually in a three-party relationship with God being the third party, holding the leaders accountable for how they shepherd. And that should cause the pastors, every pastor everywhere, to reverence God tremble before God. Just think about what the writer has said about God here in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the God with whom the pastor has to deal about your souls. A living God. Terrible and awesome in the old English meaning of those words strikes wonder and fear in the hearts of of all. A God who is a consuming fire. Says to me, says to Tim, says to Baba Tooney, says to Dennis, you're going to have to give me a report of how you cared for the sheep. If a man desiring to be a pastor doesn't tremble at the idea of a holy living God holding them accountable, then that man is dangerous to everyone around him. But the fact that pastors must give an account to God should also cause the people of God to respect their leaders all the more. If you know what a holy and solemn responsibility this is for your pastors, it ought to make you more cooperative with the leadership. Christians who seem to get joy from questioning and attacking their church leaders are a danger to themselves and everybody around them. We don't have any of them in the membership here. Relax, I ain't talking about nobody. Just making the point, talking about other churches. God values the care of your souls enough to hold the pastors accountable for how we treat you. Believe me, that is not a light thought. So those earlier feelings I told you to be aware of, bring those, bring those feelings now, bring those questions and thoughts back to the front of your mind for just a moment. Do those feelings really consider the value of your soul and the accountability your pastors face? So if there's anything in you that was kicking and bucking against the notion of obey and submit, If there was anything that was sort of instinctively and quickly suspicious and maybe even stubbornly suspicious, is that feeling, is that that submission, is that kicking, is that bucking, is it considering at all how valuable your soul is? And is it considering at all that the pastors, the leaders, are going to give an account to God, that God is the accountability partner in this process? Because if those feelings aren't taking into consideration those things, those feelings are misguided and will misguide you. If we recognize that someone is trying to watch out for our souls, how should we respond to them? And if we recognize that they are watching over us, knowing that God is going to hold them to account, what, what response should we give them? Perhaps we've not thought about this aspect of our relationship as pastors and people. 
But how might knowing the pastor's accountability to God affect how we receive teaching and correction from them? How might knowing the pastor's accountability to God impact our trust for our leaders? When we know the accountability our pastors face, then obedience and submission become pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Seems to me. So heart check. How's your heart toward the leaders when it comes to obedience and submission? And again, I don't have any particular member in mind. There's no issue that I'm aware of where people are, you know, rebelling against us in some way. It really, truly, before the Lord. I, there's nothing, I'm asking this in principle. And, and maybe I'm asking it before that arises so that we have a right answer before we're in the, in the throes of some kind of disagreement. But heart check. How's your heart toward the leaders when it comes to obedience and submission. And brothers, heart check. How are we doing when it comes to shepherding the people as men who must give an account? These are sobering realities, aren't they? And they have a way of forcing to the front the soul and the business of soul care. So those are the two reasons you should submit to your leaders, whether you're a member of this church or where you just happen to be with us on a Sunday online or here in the auditorium, um, visiting from some other church where you're a member. Um, this applies to your church too. I, I hope that you go back to wherever you uh, worship and have membership with, with sort of a renewed sense that these men are watching over your soul as men who must give an account. And the proper response is cooperation, submission and obedience. Well, let me, let's end with the third thing, thinking about motive here. That's that second sentence in verse 17, where the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, let them do this, this meaning watch for your soul. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We'll see there the two things I'm calling motives, right? The motive for the the pastor-people relationship where people are called to obey and submit to their leaders, you should be motivated to pursue our joy now, not our groaning. The word groaning in the original is a real strong word that you might have um, a translation there, burden or things of that sort. Um, the, the pastoral ministry can, can be a ministry where sometimes grown men are made to groan, are, are laboring under the burden of it the difficulty of it, the stress of it, the weight of it. Think of the Apostle Paul in, in his letter to the Corinthians where he goes through this long list of things that have happened to him, shipwrecked and beaten and things of that sort. You know what he says at the end? And on top of all of that, the cares of the church that come upon me daily. And that's what you ask your pastors to do, to care for the church daily. And that can be done one of two ways, according to this text. That could be a real life-giving joy, or that could be a real soul-crushing burden. And again, for the curious, it's joy for us. It's a great joy to be your pastors. And what I want you to see is the connection 
between your obedience and submission to following us as we follow Christ and our joy. Just as I wanted you to see the connection in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, to between our not lording over your faith, but working together with you for your joy. So, so what's happening in this text, when you put those two texts together, here's how I would summarize it. That the happiest place on earth ought to be the local church. It ought to be the local church. Because you're supposed to have pastors working together with you for your spiritual joy. And we're supposed to have members who are working together with us in obedience and submission so that we might have joy. A happy pastor is good for your soul. A joyful team of shepherds is good for your joy. The text here says, this is why, this is the motive for obeying and submitting to them. God designed the pastor-people relationship so that everybody gets joy. How good is God? The church should be the most joyful community anybody ever finds. It ought to be awkward for sour people to be in the church. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Folks just always mad about something. Lips stuck out, face long. You give them a compliment, girl, that's a nice hat and that dress. You working at. <laughs> Y'all done met him? Y'all done met him? They ought to be tired of coming to ARC. I ain't going to that church no more. The people too happy. Every time I turn around, somebody's smiling. Somebody praising the Lord. I got time for all that. <laughs> and it ought to be such an attraction to people who are seeking joy, who are wrestling with sorrow, who need encouragement. Uh, the place to be is with God's people because we're meant to be working together for precisely that, for your joy and ours over and over and over again. Now, notice what the text says. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning. So that's for the pastors. Now it turns back to the members, for that would be of no advantage to you. The, the text is actually saying it is profitable. It is a blessing. It is a benefit to the Christian when the Christian submits and obeys its leadership. And the leadership serves not with groaning, but with happiness. This, this doubles back into your advantage. And so it's right to seek your own advantage, in a sense, in the Christian church. Not in a selfish sense, I just want my way. I don't, I don't like the color of the carpets. We need to change the color of the carpets. I'm going to bring it up at every member's meeting until we change it. Praise God, we don't own no carpet. <laughs> this, this is the art carpet. You know, whatever they do with it, that's what they're doing with it, Right? Not in a selfish way, but in a proper spiritual way. It's right for the church to seek its spiritual advantage. And the Bible isn't leaving us guessing as, as to how to do that. It's by obeying and submitting to godly leadership who is watching over your soul, knowing they must give an account to God. The end of that is happiness for the leaders and advantage to the members. You want to do something for your spiritual good? Listen to your leaders. Listen to your leaders. 
Let's make sure, beloved, we put everyone's joy at the center of our relationship as pastors and people. Joy is why we care for souls. Joy is what we partner to produce. Let's each pastor and people do what leads to joy. And joy we will have because that's how God has designed it. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you would give us a further taste of this thing called joy. Some of us have not known it for a long time, have been searching for it in all the wrong places. And you have done something in creating this relationship between your under shepherds and the sheep that you bought with your own blood. You have designed this relationship in such a way that when it's properly functioning and, and, and the spiritual is the focus, that it results in joy for the whole church. Father, we pray that our church family would just overflow with gladness that every heart would be made light with joy and strengthened with happiness as we delight in you, delight in your presence with us, delight in your work in and through us as we discover more of you in the hearts of each other. Fill us with joy, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.